When I launched my book, Five Minute Broke My Heart, we were going through infertility and my husband kept getting these uh, business trips where he'd go away for three weeks or a month to Japan and Korea and London and, and all these places. And you can't really be going through infertility without another person helping you. And mm -hmm. I was so frustrated. And right at the time when he was gone, I met an old boyfriend. And all of a sudden I thought to myself, uh oh, did I marry the wrong person? And if I would have married this person, I would have been able to be a mom. And so that's actually what inspired Five Men Who Broke My Heart, you know, was did I marry the wrong person? Hey, hey, Holly. Hey, Amanda. Welcome, Lit Mamas. You're listening to This Mama is Lit, the podcast where we explore the multi-sided questions of motherhood. Every other week, we'll be bringing you a new unfiltered chat with another mama writer. I'm Amanda Fields, Editor-in-Chief of Literary Mama and a Divorced Mom of One. I'm Holly Rizzuto-Polker, Profiles Editor at Literary Mama mom to three amazing children, and a cute Jack Russell Terrier. And I'm Brianna Avinia Tapper. I'm also a Profiles Editor at Literary Mama, and I have two small children. <laughs> Welcome, Sue. Hi, thanks for having me. I love Literary Mama. Ah, oh, thank you. Sue Shapiro is the author of acclaimed nonfiction books, Unhooked, a New York Times bestseller, The Forgiveness Tour, a Jewish book council pick, and the popular writing craft books, The Book Bible and the Byline Bible. She co-authored The Bosnia List, an Oprah Book of the Week, and World in Between with Kenan Trebinsevic. Shapiro has written for The New York Times, New York Times Modern Love, New York Magazine, Washington Post, and many more. She teaches the uber-successful online class, Instant Gratification Takes Too Long, and is a writing professor at NYU, The New School, and Columbia University. Her newest book, American Shield, The Immigrant Sergeant Who Defended Democracy, is co-authored with Aquilino Ganil, and that launches November 7th. We're so excited to have you here because although you aren't a mother in the traditional sense, some might argue, I know I would, that you're more of a doting Jewish mother to your writing students, nieces, and nephews than many women who have conceived and birthed children. Would you agree? Well, I've heard that before, so I'll take it as a compliment. <laughs> okay. You've played many roles, matchmaker, writing guru. You've written about a lot of this. And you also told me that you never wanted a traditional family. You wanted to escape yours and move to New York. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that story? I'm trying to find a way to say it so my mother won't, <laughs> won't be upset. But uh, <laughs> I always felt I was switched at birth because my parents were New Yorkers. They were They were from the Lower East Side. And yet I grew up in the Midwest and I grew up in a, a big conservative Jewish family and the politics were very, you know, in where I was in Michigan was right wing. And I would even say, um, uh, how could I say it? Uh, redneck. <laughs> uh, yeah, I just didn't fit in. And then I moved to New York at 20. And then I just, I sat in Washington Square Park the first day watching all the weirdos wearing black clothes like I was and, you know, singing, you know, bad Bob Dylan imitations and writing poetry and all that stuff. And I thought, okay, this is where I should have been. 
you know, and it was the first time that I really felt at home. Okay. So when you came to New York, you wanted to write. You got married later in life, correct? You were about 35? Yes. Okay. And when you did decide, oh, maybe maybe it's time to have children, you had some difficulties. Do you want to talk about that? When we tried, it was very exciting just because I never, I never really seen myself uh, as being able to um, have a child. It took a long, long time to figure out how to make a living. So that was part of my fear that I would never be able to afford working and childcare and having a kid, but all of a sudden we were doing okay. And uh, we were getting more successful. And I thought, you know, maybe, maybe there is room in my life for this. So it was very exciting. And so then for a few years, it was amazingly frustrating because I, you know, was so sure it was going to, you know, we finally found each other and it was going to be perfect and we were, it was going to happen. And, you know, ironically, of course, we tried and it, and it, and it wasn't happening. Every time we get new information, it was just so frustrating. In fact, I think at one point when I was working on my book, Five Men Who Broke My Heart, the way that I actually started the book was there was one day when I got, it was going out, it was getting rejected. And there was one day when I got two faxes, because it was in the days of the faxes. And one fax was from my gynecologist basically saying, you're not going to be able to have a child together. This is just not going to happen. And then I got a fax from my editor saying that the five last editors who were reading this book that we had sent out rejected it. Wow. I wrote a line saying, it felt like she was saying the only child you could have is ugly. We don't want it. There was all kinds of complications and the equation we were given was, was really difficult, which was we were both Tay-Sachs carriers and it would have involved at the stage we were at, it would have involved, he would have needed an operation. We would have needed in vitro at the time, this is about 30 years ago, we would have needed a, I don't know, some kind of a special IVF that they do that, I forgot the word for it, but that it helps with, uh, um, to make sure that you're not passing down the, the Tay-Sachs. And it was uh, very complicated. And then they said it would be $30,000 to try once. And they couldn't assure us that, you know, that it would work. And so, you know, I said, well, what if, what if I got pregnant? And then it turns out that um, the Tay-Sachs was passed down. And then they said, well, you, you would do an amniocentesis and then, you know, and then there could be an abortion at three or four months. And we just looked at each other and we just, you know, we couldn't continue. And so it was very frustrating. I did a lot of therapy. I had a very tough talking therapist that I've actually written several books about, including uh, Lighting Up, my addiction therapist. And he just went at it head on. You know, he just said, you know, I said, I'm I'm trying not to be upset because I, I feel like I'm not allowed to be upset because I am privileged and I'm I have this great husband and we you know, we have a good apartment and now I have a good, good career and he has a good career. And why am I so upset? And he said, you know, there are some ways you look at this. It is a biological tragedy and you're going to have to face it because if you don't face it, you know, then you're just going to, you're going to break down at a different point when you're, when you don't expect it and you don't want to be shocked by it. So deal with it. So I think I had to mourn and it somehow, it somehow morphed into writing about that grief and writing about the frustration. And it came out in a funny way and five minutes broke my heart, you know, but that was really, I think that's how I poured out my energy and my heart and soul and, and all the frustrations. And then in writing the book, being able to publish the book was so thrilling. I mean, it was just the most thrilling thing that happened in my life. Cause again, I've been writing since I've been 20 and here I am 43 years old and random house, not only bought this book, random house, bought three books 
Wow. (laughs) My God, it was, I was just like over the moon. I was, it was the most exciting thing that ever happened in my life. In fact, I made the mistake of saying that I think to an interviewer that this was the most exciting day in my life. And my husband was like, not our marriage. (laughs) (laughs) Anybody could get married. You just need another person. But this is like a a book. I've spent my whole life trying for this. I can feel the triumph. I have goosebumps. (laughs) Would that be your advice, Sue, to give other women writers who were facing similar difficulties about becoming mothers? What would be your advice to them? Well, therapy is really something that I highly, highly, highly recommend. I I always say it's like getting a PhD in yourself. And I think that it, I mean, it helps a lot of people in a lot of fields, but I think especially, it's especially difficult to make a living in a creative field. You know, it's just, it's just so hard. I mean, you could do every single thing right and never publish anything or never be able to make a living or never be able to publish a book. So it's just making it in, in the literary world is just so difficult. Journaling and writing is just such a great therapeutic tool. You know, so, so I definitely recommend, you know, when, when I get, um, when I meet new writers and in my classes, I definitely recommend writing about your pain. I I think Auden has a great line in a poem, believe your pain, write about how you feel journal, journal every day, get it out, be, you know, be as honest and deep as you can. My, My therapist had a great line that said, the addiction therapist said, lead the least secretive life you can. That line that you quoted, believe your pain seems like such good advice for writing, but also absolutely the advice that I need to hear for my parenting. It's it's from uh, The Sea in the Mirror. The father is saying goodbye to his son who he might never see again. Mm -hmm. He basically says, when you come, when you come to the place where thought accuses and feeling mocks, believe your pain. So here it is. Mm -hmm. But, But should you fail to keep your kingdom? It's a king who's talking to his son, the prince, but should you fail to keep your kingdom and like your father before you come where thought accuses and feeling mocks, believe your pain. Mm. So, so look it in the face, be honest with yourself about it, write it, deal with it, talk about it. So that's kind of been my liberation. And, you know, and as I mentioned, I come from um, very conservative Midwest suburbia where I mean, the joke in my family was, you know, you never say anything bad about yourself or anyone else or your family or the Cossacks will come get you, you know, so <laughs> like this, this old world mentality of you never say anything bad. So of course I fell in love with confessional poets who say right. all the time, <laughs> you know, I used to march around my house saying, you know, like I'm tired. Everybody's tired of my turmoil or dying in the car. <laughs> I do it exceptionally well. I used to love the confessional poets because they would say these horrible things that you're not allowed to say. I think it was so liberating. Uh, really in uh, in uh, maybe sixth grade, seventh grade at my school when, when I was turned on to confessional poetry and just to read the poets, just, just saying blatant, horrible things that you're never allowed to say. I was like, those are my people. <laughs> Tell us about what your relationship was like with your own mother. I am very, very close with my mom. She was an orphan growing up in New York and she lost her mother, I think when she was very young and uh, lost her dad when she was about 12 or 13. And she was one of five kids. So to her, family was everything. And uh, her brothers and sisters were, you know, kind of her lifeline. And I think she always wanted to, you know, to have a big family. Uh, There's a line, you become what's missing. So that was really important to her. And so I think that she had her fantasy of, and I think my father, the best place he got into medical school was in the Midwest. So when they settled, I think they, you know, the white picket fence and the suburbia, that was really a dream for them to be able to raise a family that way. And very early on, like I said, I didn't quite feel like I fit into the picture the way I was supposed to, you know, because I was I was sort of, you know, I'm the oldest of four kids and I have three younger brothers and 
I was supposed to be mommy's little helper. And I just sort of flunked that role. I didn't want to be mommy's little helper. And I didn't understand why there were three screaming, messy boys always, you know, always around getting in the way. And so I think, um, so, so even though we were very close, you know, we did lock horns and, and at a certain point, I think in high school, I think I got condescending. And I think when I found feminism, I felt like, oh, she's staying home and having kids. And, and, um, I thought that the, there were things in our household that I deemed sexist and, uh, you know, I wanted to escape the suburbia and her life. And it took me a long time to kind of, um, get a better overview. And I recently wrote a piece actually for tablet magazine, a women's liberation that, that said, I spent my life trying not to be like my mother, but maybe she had everything she'd always wanted. And what I realized um, you know, when I really look carefully at the at the picture was that she worked for many years from when she was a teenager. And she put my father through medical school. She quit to raise kids for 20 years. And then after we went to college, she started a very lucrative, fun party planning business that she loved. And she could have really expanded and been a multimillionaire if she wanted to. But then she decided uh, when grandkids came that she would rather put her devotion into her family and her grandkids. But so in looking over her life, she got everything she wanted. And she actually realized, I think that, that a woman can have everything you want, but maybe not all at the same time. Mm -hmm. So in retrospect, I kind of realized she got the whole female time frame right to begin with. And I think I ended by saying, uh, although I'm fulfilled by work and love lately, I find myself wishing my life had been more like hers. Oh, that's, that's so poignant. You told me that you feel a maternal urge to help the students you care about. So I want to know how you do that and what are some of the most challenging things to teach your students about writing? Okay, well, so what was interesting was, so so I have an undergraduate degree in creative writing from the University of Michigan and a graduate degree from NYU. I took classes for years and years and years, and it just took me so long to figure out how to make a living. And nobody really wanted to talk about how to, you know, how do you get an editor? How do you get an agent? How do you sell work? Nobody ever talked about that. So when I started teaching at the new school, I started a class. Uh, I called it the instant gratification takes too long method, where the goal of the class was to write and publish a great piece by the end of the class. Yeah, so it, it became very exciting. And I didn't necessarily know at the time how complicated it could be to help somebody, you know, my first assignment is write about your most humiliating secret. And I sort of took that from the confessional poetry that, that you know, that's that's how I started writing is the worst. The uh, Joseph Brodsky, my professor at NYU, used to say the worst insult with writing is there's no blood here. So when I would give the assignment, I didn't necessarily realize at the beginning maybe how complicated it would be for people to for young people to put into words, um, you know, what they were going through. And, you know, and do you want to write about it? And am I allowed to write about it? And I started coming up with these funny rules, like the first piece you write that your family hates means that you found your voice. That's how it started. And I guess I started feeling very protective and worried, you know, and, and also my students are writing about really, you know, very heavy stuff. So, you, you know, I'm in New York City, right. it's a diverse group of students. I used to have 100 students in term in person. And you say, write about your most humiliating secrets. And I'm getting really heavy stuff. I had a... Um, I mean, one of my former students, Alex Miller, the first piece he wrote was about how um, his uh, his mom was schizophrenic growing up as a, a poor black kid in in the um, south side of Chicago, and uh, he wound up 
um, because of poverty, he wound up going into the military and then he got wounded. And at one point he was a homeless veteran and, you know, it was so heavy. And, and so the work that came out of my classes was so intense that I think it, it required more than just editing on a page. I became entrenched in, in trying to help them in other ways and not just publish quickly, but make sure that they were okay. And, you know, New York City is so hard and I probably went through every problem one could have in, you know, being innocent, coming from the Midwest and just landing here. So aside from, you know, how to make a living and how to um, publish, it, a lot of other things became involved. And that's when people started calling me their Jewish mother. So I'm a teacher as well. And, you know, about half of my career, I didn't have a kid. And then then I had a kid. But I've always thought about this idea of, am I a maternal figure in some way? And I've really resisted that idea as a teacher. So I'm kind of curious, when you said, I feel a maternal urge, is that the same thing as mentorship? Is it the same thing as teaching? Yeah, I think what happened is because my classes were working on such personal material, I felt worried, you know, say just for an example with Alex and and he's written about this. So I feel some, you know, I would never um, talk about it if a student wasn't comfortable with it. But so Alex has actually written about it. So just for an example, you know, so I get a piece in, you know, that talks about how he was homeless at the time, how his VA benefits didn't come through and he couldn't afford to, he couldn't afford his apartment and he was at a homeless shelter. And so I, I couldn't, read that and not be moved and not be worried about him. And I, I called him, I kept calling him and we, we were able to, you know, set up phone meetings and, you know, I helped him figure out ways to get to class. And, uh, and I'll tell you a really great story was that I helped him come to class and uh, he, he was working on this beautiful piece and there was a New York times editor. And I, at the end of the class, I introduced him to the editor and I said, you know, are you up to telling the editor what you're writing about? So he said, well, I don't think anyone at the New York Times would be interested in what it feels like to be a, a black homeless veteran. And the New York Times editor looked up at him and said, oh, yes, we would. But I definitely felt, you know, it, that was more than just being a teacher or a mentor. Honesty is always a big thing for you. When you critique our work, you're very honest. You always encourage us to be very honest, as you've said, and the only person in my life that's honest with me is my mother. <laughs> I know if I need the truth, I go to my mother. So to me, that is a mothering quality. What do you feel about honesty? Yeah, well, so I struggled for so many years. And what I found on every level was the people who helped me the most were the ones who were the, not only the most honest, but really tough love. You know, so just for an example, my therapist didn't say, you know, he, he didn't sugarcoat you know, oh, you don't have children, but you have a great career. And so you're going to be happy. He said, yes, this is a biological tragedy. You have to face this. It's horrible. You know, it's, you were put on this earth to do one thing and you and your husband can't do it. And how does that feel? And, you know, and he would just say things like that all the time. And, and when I was doing addiction therapy, that's what helped me the most. And I had tried to quit smoking and drinking and drugs for many years, 27 years. And so what helped me the most and what kind of unraveled the issues for me was somebody who was just blatantly honest and went right for it and told me the truth. And that I also found that to be true with, in my writing. And I always say to my students, if you could find somebody who will say, oh, you're so brilliant, you know, kind of blow smoke up your ass, go find somebody else who will tell you the truth and who will give you constructive criticism. You know, so so just for an example, somebody will say to me, boy, these first three pages are so boring. And I just, I, I really thank God they said that because 
I could spend years thinking this is so smart and I'm sending it to editors and agents and all these newspapers and magazines and nobody's buying it. And I don't know why. And it would drive me crazy. And so somebody says it's boring. I'm like, oh yeah, it's boring. Thank you. I got to liven this up. Yes. That's how I feel. That's that's the best. Really the best way I think I can help my students is, you know, being really honest and giving them the, you know, giving them really tough criticism just because I don't want them to you know, I don't want them to make a fool out of themselves. I don't want them to send work to agents and to newspaper magazines and, and not have any idea what they're sending out. And I try to do it in the most caring way, but it's, you know, it is, I, I do feel like they're, you know, it is maternal because I want to be protective. Yeah. Oh, and I want to, I want to impart any wisdom that I have that could help them to, to get what they want, you know, but it does require listening and uh you know sometimes taking a step back and sometimes being really pissed off at me (laughs) is there anything else sue that you want to tell us or that that you think would be valuable right now after teaching at nyu new school in columbia for 25 years i'm doing online classes which are really exciting and open to anybody Mm -hmm. and so if anybody's interested so i have two Um, writing guides, the byline Bible and the book Bible, which teaches people how to get published. And I do all kinds of online seminars and classes and free panels with editors and agents. So if anybody is interested um, and, and I'm now that I quit all my other addictions, I'm addicted to email. So people are allowed to email me at profsue123 at gmail.com. Awesome. That's profsue, P-R-O-F-S-U-E, one, two, three at gmail.com. And we'll put that email address in the show notes for this episode as well. Cool. Well, Sue, thank you so much for sharing so much with us. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. Like I said, I love Literary Mama. 